Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. All right, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series here at the iconic KGB Bar. My name is David Mercura Rivera. Joining me tonight in our co-hosting duties is also is Chandler Klein-Smith. Chandler. And both Ellen Dallow and Matt Kressel, the series regular hosts, are traveling this month separately. They asked us to emphasize for some reason. We demand proof. <laughs> so thanks, thanks to Ellen and Matt for inviting us to guest host. When I say this is an iconic location, the origins of this space date back, date back to the 1950s when it was a speakeasy for Ukrainian socialists <laughs> who hid their political affiliation, understandably so, during a time of uh, rampant McCarthyism. And in the 80s, it became an art gallery. Uh, and it reopened in 1993 as a bar and has become a literary institution since. In the late 90s, Terry Bisson and the late Alice K. Turner started this reading series and it's been going strong ever since, um, currently under the auspices of Ellen and Matt. Uh, the series is held on the third Wednesday of every month, featuring luminaries and up-and-comers in speculative fiction. Um, if you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, where we won't spam you, go to kgbfantasticfiction.org. Admission is always free. The bar allows us to hold the readings here without charge. We only request that you support the bar and the series by ordering a drink, uh, either hard or soft and tip the hard-working bartenders, please. <laughs> so you're in for a treat tonight. We have two terrific readers, uh, Lara Elena Donnelly and Paul Whitcover. Both have their books available. Well, do you have a book available for sale, Paul, up here? You do not, but he'll tell you how you can get a copy, though. And Lara has some copies of her books available. Come up and buy them, and she'll be happy to sign them for you at intermission. So with that, I'll introduce our first reader of the night, Lara Alana Donnelly. Lara Alana Donnelly is the author, is the author of the Nebula, Lambda, and Locust-nominated trilogy, The Amberlow Dossier, as well as short fiction and poetry appearing in venues including Strange Horizons, Escape Pod, Nightmare, and Uncanny. Lara teaches at the Catapult classes in New York City and is a thesis advisor in the MFA program at Sarah Lawrence College. Ladies and gentlemen, Lara Elena Donnelly. Thank you. Can you guys hear me? Am I adjacent enough to the microphone? Awesome. Well, <laughs> thank you everyone for being here instead of Dublin. <laughs> um, <laughs> How about Limerick? Or, you know, anywhere in Europe. <laughs> I feel like after uh, Helsinki a couple years ago, everyone was like, well, now that I'm here, I might as well go to St. Petersburg or wherever. So thanks for either cutting your travels short 
having our travels before Worldcon or like me being too broke to go to Europe. I am <laughs> um, going to read from a work in progress called Base Notes, which is out on submission right now. Please pray for me. I am not panicking. Um, it is about a perfumer who can create memories from scent for a price, which is if you want to remember something like your first kiss, you need to include the kisser in the perfume. So there's a lot of murder uh, in this novel. <laughs> it is, to use literary parlance, in conversation with Patrick Susskind's novel Perfume, the story of a murderer, but I think it reads kind of like Brian Fuller's Hannibal meets the talented Mr. Ripley, in that it's really gay and luxe and uh, everyone is terrible. <laughs> it's also about the grind and hustle of trying to make a living on your art in New York City, which we all know is a bum deal, and the frustrating relationship that uh, poor artists have with their rich patrons. So I'm going to read a couple of scenes from this, and I just realized I left my whiskey over here. Oh, oh thank you, yes. Uh, so I'm going to read a couple of scenes in which the main character is meeting with a prospective investor who's playing this sort of cruel game of cat and mouse uh, with like whether they'll give the money or they won't give the money. They promised the money, but then they didn't give it. And it's just like, oh, it's so terrible. Um, this perfumer also makes a like makes some cash with a side gig, which is something many of us probably have. Uh, their side gig just happens to be like murder for hire, in that they they run a perfume company, but also on the side they'll like kill someone and turn them into perfume to make a fancy magical memory perfume for you if you want. Uh, so they've done that before for this investor, and he's maybe after after another one. Um, so we're gonna start. We're going to start with that. I'm going to start with a drink of scotch. <laughs> Eisner texted to say he was running late, trapped in the office, wouldn't make the first half. So I listened to a series of increasingly elaborate and ethereal Berlioz art songs on my own, wondering what he wanted. I looked forward to intermission with equal parts dread and intrigue. About halfway through the interval, I spotted Eisner in the lobby, a miracle in the milling crowd of Q-tips and successful young professionals, salted with student rush and last-minute bargains. Gold bond, bad breath, bath and body works. What did they think when they saw us, I wondered. My best guess was father and child. I kept a careful distance from his side as we ascended toward the mezzanine. I didn't want to be this evening's grave-robbing arm candy even in the minds of strangers. You know, said Eisner, it was a surprise to see you at the Dvorak earlier this week. Really? I asked. Yes. He motioned me through the double doors ahead of him. I suppose you don't seem like the kind of young person who enjoys these things. I wanted to say, you have no idea what kind of young person enjoys these things. Every young person you've ever invited has been trying to impress you, or at least get you to pay for dinner. I wanted to say, you don't know me at all. But I wanted him to pay for dinner too, or at least a drink. I wanted him to pay for my life's work. Our seats were very good, nestled in the belly of the center orchestra with just enough height to look slightly down on the stage. The musicians rustled and shifted, ran through scales, 
I smelled cork grease and key oil. We didn't have to wait long until the conductor appeared in a rain of applause, stepped up and cued the oboe for a long, clear tuning note. The oboe doesn't tune to the orchestra, one of my paramours had told me. The orchestra tunes to the oboe. She lived in my leather box now, alongside Jonathan. If I wanted, when I got home, I could listen to her play Mozart for me, the two of us alone in the submarine gloom of her ground floor apartment in South Slope, all windows facing the courtyard. The boiler just beneath the floor filled the rooms with a low hum like the engine of a ship. She had not been a particularly interesting person. Beautiful, yes, and talented, but it was no sacrifice for me to break her neck in order to preserve her music in a bottle. Mildew, lavender, hot metal, spit, and her own smell, unique, inimitable. I could almost conjure them now, but knew my remembrance, unaided by the true accord, was fallible, that I might invent some elements and erase others. Memory was treacherous territory. Silence fell in the concert hall. Several hundred breaths drew in. The baton came down, and the brass exploded. How can I describe this symphony to someone who has never heard it? It would be like spraying my own memories against your skin and expecting you to have the same reaction to those scents. Open your eyes and look out from within my skull. The music painted. It danced, it inhaled and exhaled, and wove a narrative just beyond language, just behind the veil of comprehension. It moved so lightly from bombast to lullaby that I felt dizzy, and in the end, when all that was left was a single violin singing over the final chords, I felt my soul strain at the bounds of my body, as though it would break through my ribs and follow that sound wherever notes went when they died. It took a long moment for applause to break out. The audience was stunned. Once it had begun, it would not end. It was like another movement, its dynamics rising and falling as if this paean too had been penned by Rimsky-Korsakov. What would it take, asked Eisner in the aftermath, eyes half shut, to preserve that sound forever? Just that single note, that moment in the dark. Not forever, I said. Only as long as the perfume lasts, as long as it remains unspoiled and doesn't oxidize. He sighed, waved a hand. You know what I mean. Could you bottle it for me? The last notes of tonight's Shahrazad. What would it take? I looked around David Geffen Hall, the crowds already leaving us behind. Bright lights, warm wood, the strange geometric shapes of dampers. I closed my eyes and took a deep breath, conjuring not the image, but its outlines in the air, the way the currents of scent eddied around them. Warm wood, still, baked by stage lights. Hot dust. Rain carried in on the clothes and shoes of the audience, present in the draft from out of doors. Menthol from a hundred unwrapped cough drops old cigarette smoke, new cigarette smoke, the mingled traces of a thousand different colognes, perfumes, shampoo, the smell of the audience, the smell of the orchestra. You're not asking me about the elements, I said. 
not the absolutes or the accord. You want to know how many people have to die. He said nothing, only arranged his purple lips into a thin and crooked smile, eyes fixed on something far away. Is that the commission, I asked? Was that why he had brought me here? I've never even tried something like that. It just isn't feasible. A pity, he said, and even I felt cold. But no, I have something more practical in mind. Join me for a drink, and I'll explain. We went to a whiskey bar on the Upper West Side. It unnerved me that he knew what I liked to drink, even more so when he said, and it's close to either of your trains, I believe. I doubted Eisner ever took the subway, and the fact he knew enough about my public transit habits to deposit me within easy walking distance of two convenient train lines made me leery. I tried to ignore the feeling until I had a heavy tumbler of cool Isla in hand. Then, with notes of pepper and lemon rind searing my sinuses and booze settling warmly in my stomach, I finally asked, what is all of this? Eisner traced the edge of his coaster with one finger, made no eye contact except with the meniscus of his scotch. It's a commission, as I said, but nothing to do with Shahrazad, so why the symphony? He drank, smiling into his glass, but the smile was grim. When he put the whiskey down, he smoothed his hands along the creases in his trousers and said, consider that an apology of sorts for, uh, what, what is it called? For uh, ghosting you? About your investment, he nodded. I just need a yes or a no, Mr. Eisner. That way I can make my plans. Unfortunately, he said, it's a little more complicated than that. Christ, he was going to be coy. Don't tell me you're hurting for money. Unease put me on the offensive. That's a line you'll have a hard time selling. No, he said, not hurting for money. A worse thought occurred to me. Is someone on to you about our work together? No, thank God. Then, sharply, why? Have you? I sipped my scotch first, just to make him sweat. No, not yet. Eisner looked relieved. I was unused to seeing anything on his face besides self-satisfaction. My sense of alarm increased. So you took me out as an apology, I said. You can't tell me yes or no, but you still want to hire me on another commission, and you think I'll agree? When you hear my terms, he said. All my sphincters twisted tight. I would not like whatever came out next. This sounded very like an entree to extortion. Your perfumes, he said. They let people relive memories, their own memories. But what about memories of moments that they never lived? Fantasy, I asked, imagination. People can certainly extrapolate on scent, but it's not under my control. He shook his head. No, real moments, but ones in which we weren't present. For instance, things that happen behind closed doors. I shook my head in turn. This wasn't whatever ax I had expected to fall, which meant that one was likely still suspended. It wouldn't work. As I understand what I do, I barely did, 
It's based on the way our brains retrieve memory and our associations of particular sense with a moment in the past. If your brain hasn't already built those pathways, I can't trailblaze, as it were. Have you ever tried? He had me there. I covered by drinking. The smell made me think of Jonathan, the bottles on his bar cart, the man who had first served me single malt. How many of the scents I had concocted from his absolute relied on some kind of whiskey note? How many times had I sat across from him with the smells of smoke and malted barley in the air between us before that last night, that last drink? <coughs> what might he have done in my absence that I would like to know? What knowledge could he pass on about this business that I had killed him before he could impart? But that wasn't how this worked. I couldn't make something out of nothing. If you can do what I ask, said Eisner, I'll cut a check. Not just for the cologne, but for the sum I offered to help bump production. You'll get your European distribution. You'll be in the black. You'll be safe, or nearly. I didn't like that invocation of safety. And if I refuse, how shocking when they tell me my dead father was made into perfume, sold to me by a twisted sadist, a serial murderer. All the physical evidence will point to you. It will come down to hearsay in court, and I have better lawyers. The scotch had dried the fat from my mouth, and now my tongue felt like roughed up wood grain. What if I try and fail? He shrugged. I'm sorry. I only have one contingency plan. I licked my teeth, cleared my throat, and asked him, what's the job? Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Uh, we'll be back in 10 minutes. Drink up. To our second reader, I just wanted to let you guys know about some of the upcoming readers we're going to have over the next few months. So um, in September, we're going to have uh, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pinsker. <laughs> September 18th, to be exact. Um, October 16th, we're going to have Nicole Corner Stace and Barbara, Barbara Krasnoff, who is here tonight. <laughs> November 20th, we're going to have David Mack and Max Gladstone. December 18th, we're going to have Paul Tremblay and Nathan Ballingred. January 15th, we'll have Cassandra Kaw and Richard Cadry. February 19th, we'll have James Patrick Kelly and P. Julie Clark. And March 18th, we will have Robert Levy and our favorite guest, TBA. <laughs> so great. Um, so it's my, my pleasure to introduce our second reader of the evening, uh, Paul Whitcover. Uh, Paul Whitcover is the author of five novels, most recently, The Watchman of Eternity. He has been a finalist for the Nebula, World Fantasy, and Shirley Jackson Awards. And we all hope that one day he wins something. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Uh, I'm really happy to see everybody here. This is a bigger crowd than I had anticipated. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, normally I don't like to read from work in progress, but this is a novel that I've been working on for about a year. And I use this reading as a kind of an impetus to spur myself on to uh, finish it, which I haven't done, by the way. Uh, but I felt like, nonetheless, it would be bad luck for me not to read from this since I promised that I would, promised myself that I would. Um, <clears throat> this is taking place in the closing days of the Civil War, and hopefully everyone can hear me okay. Earlier, two Union spies were dispatched by Alan Pinkerton, the head of the Union Secret Service, across Confederate lines near Winchester, Virginia, to fetch back a rebel doctor, which they have done. We are now aboard a train speeding to Washington, D.C. with the doctor and one of those men. In the car with them is a corpse. Finn and the doctor regarded each other warily. At last, Finn spoke. Well, Doc, I reckon you best get on with it. The doctor rolled his eyes, or rather his one good eye, the other had swollen shut, mainly because Finn socked him earlier. <laughs> I'm going to examine the body. While I do so, I want you to secure the arms and legs. What for? He ain't going nowhere. Trust me, Captain. You will be glad of the restraints. Finn accompanied the doctor to the table. The expression on the leathery face was one of profound calm, though blood had pooled behind the eyes, giving the flesh a ruddy hue. The worn visage familiar to Finn from photographs and drawings and from sight, though of course he had never been this close to the man in life, struck him by its peaceful cast, as if death had sanded away the rough edges of worry and care, leaving a face that bore all the marks of intense suffering, yet also seemed aloof from that suffering, from all earthly things. He felt black rage bubbling up in him again, but he clamped it down. He would do his duty even if, in truth, it seemed like sacrilege. Not that he believed in God. He had lost that belief when still a boy, had it beaten plumb out of him, and the horrors of the last four years would have killed it in any case. But there were still some things he held as sacred in the godless world, maybe all the more sacred because godless. The table was equipped with heavy leather restraints, and Finn secured them to the arms and legs of the corpse, the legs were so long that the restraints meant for the ankles had to be fastened to the calves. As he worked, cinching the straps tight, a story he'd once heard flared to life in his mind. It seemed that someone had inquired of the president just how long a man's legs should be. Long enough to reach the ground, came the considered reply. But now the ground was forever beyond the reach of these legs, the longest Finn had ever seen like a stork's legs or a cricket's. The doctor had peeled away the bandages and was carefully examining the back of the president's head, frowning as he did so. Well, asked Finn. The brain has been too badly damaged, the doctor said without glancing up. What's that mean? He touched the hilt of the bowie knife but did not draw it. Oh, I could bring him back. The doctor's gaze went from Finn's hand to his eyes. His squint lent him a piratical look. He'd be a vegetable, a drooling idiot. What do you care? Seems like you'd prefer him that way. My preferences count for little, it seems. Let us see what the materials are waiting behind the curtain. 
The doctor made his way to the rear of the car, pushing the curtain aside to enter. Finn followed. Inside, two gurneys rested side by side, rocking gently with the movements of the train. On one lay the corpse, lay the naked corpse of a beardless young man. His head was shaved, eyes closed, skin pallid as rice pudding. There was not a mark on him so far as Finn could see. Who was he? How had he come to be here? A sheet lay over the second gurney, and beneath that sheet, to judge by the shape, a second body reposed. What's this, Finn asked, the hairs on the back of his neck prickling as if in a chill breeze. The doctor, who had bent to examine the corpse, straightened with a grin. Spare parts, I suppose you might say. Finn considered this for a moment. Then, you're going to take the brain out of this man and put it into the president? Why, Captain, you are not as stupid as you look, the doctor said. Just going to scoop it out and slap it down like ice cream into a bowl. That about right? Even if I had the time or inclination to explain the procedure to you, you would not understand it. However, I will require your assistance in moving the gurney. The doctor's gesture was midway between an invitation and a command. Finn ignored it. Tell me one thing, Doc. Assuming you bring him back to life like you claim you can do, and I ain't saying I believe it, who's he going to be? Abraham Lincoln or this fellow? A bit of both, I would say. Mostly this young man, whoever he is. That's what I want to know, said Finn. Who the hell is he? Someone suitable, I'm sure. Now, and who's... Finn drew down the sheet covering the second gurney. And it was as, as though the body there <clears throat> had risen up and placed its hands around his throat and squeezed. Choking, he staggered back, dragging the sheet to the floor, shaking his head to throw off the effects of a punch he hadn't seen coming. Why, I wondered what had become of your boy, the doctor said. Finn blinked in disbelief, wishing the sight away, but it was carved into the world and could not be blinked or wished away. He felt obscurely that there would never come a time, should he live for a hundred years, that this moment would not be as present and immediate to him as it was right now. A pit yawned in his heart, and from the lightless depths of it, he felt the stirrings of a brute, black rage. The doctor, meanwhile, performed a cursory examination. He has been shot. Can I get a uh, napkin or something? Pass me a napkin. Thank you. Sorry about that. <clears throat> the doctor, meanwhile, performed a cursory examination. He has been shot. Look here, just below the shoulder. The bullet must have pierced a lung. Finn remembered the moment aboard the skiff when there had been a break in the rhythm of the rowing. But there was no blood. He didn't say anything. The doctor shrugged. I have seen stranger things in the surgical tent after a battle, he said. Men dying of wounds they never knew they'd received. Or perhaps the bullet did not kill him after all. Perhaps his heart simply gave out. The Bowie knife was in Finn's hand before he knew he had pulled it. His vision swam, and the train rocked under him like a raft on the slow rolling excuse me, on the slow rolling tide of a, of a wide river. Captain, remember your promise, the doctor said, trembling hands raised as if to fend him off. This is not my doing. Finn recalled Pinkerton's words. We have each suffered a grave loss. We must rise above our individual pain and anger and put the country first. 
recalled how one of the guards had leaned close to whisper in Pinkerton's ear, and the look Pinkerton had shot him before continuing on through the train. He had known. Of course he had known. But the man was right, damn it. Finn tamped down his rage, corked it tight. He would settle with Pinkerton later. But first, slight plan change of plans, Doc, he said. Finn moved through what followed in a waking dream. His body performed what tasks were asked of it, then seated itself on a nearby chair as if to view the proceedings. But all the while, his gaze turned inward, miles and years distant, adrift under summer skies. That had been a life fit for kings. Catfish for supper, pipe always full, easy conversation all day and into the evening <clears throat> as, the or as the shore slipped by in endless, <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> in endless green unfurling, the river adding its voice to their own. He would have stayed there forever if he could. <clears throat> it's a funny thing about fiction. <sighs> but then the strange devices whose shining wire and steel appendages he'd attached to the president's corpse, as though that broken body were a kind of machine past healing, but not repair, came crackling and sparkling to life as if struck by a bolt of lightning whose electrical force remained trapped within the metal coils and limbs like some wild creature constrained against its will paced the circuit of its captivity, growing fiercer with each iteration until the hair on Finn's arms and legs stood to attention and the doctor's hair, hair likewise and the president's too, what was left of it. And the air of the car sizzled with pinwheeling blue-white sparks that put Finn in fear of his life, though when they touched him, he felt no more than a tickling sensation that under other circumstances might have been pleasant. The doctor seemed to find it so, for he laughed in childlike wonder as the sparks, like living things possessed of curiosity, if not intelligence, darting minnows of the ether, crowded about his body, outlining it in light. The same was happening to Finn the sparks pressing close, almost playfully, darting against him as if desiring to enter his flesh, yet that way was barred to them. They bounced off, recoiling with fizzes and snaps. The body of the president proved more hospitable. There the questing sparks met no rebuff, but slid smoothly into the pallid flesh, sinking deep and lighting it from within, hundreds and thousands of them, a brilliant, lively swarm, so that for a moment the corpse shone like an angel, so bright that Finn threw a shielding hand before his eyes and beheld veins, bones, washed in reddish fire. Then the fire dwindled, winked out. He dropped his hand. The glow was gone from the body, save for the eyes, open now, staring, ablaze, electric, but sightless, surely, surely not alive. No, not alive, surely. The body shuddered along its length. The chest swelled noisily with indrawn air, those eyes shining like lamps all the while. The doc doctor, no longer laughing, stared enraptured, like a man might stare at an avalanche heading straight for him. 
cold terror leached the strength from Finn's limbs so that he could not move or blink or breathe. A groan emerged from the body strapped to the table, a sound that seemed to issue from no human throat, but from the depths of a block of wood or stone subjected to inner stresses beyond its ability to endure. Another shudder racked the form, and then a seizure took hold, the body straining upward as if the bones were seeking to claw their way to freedom. There was a snap, and the doctor cried out, not a bone, as Finn initially thought, stomach lurching. One of the leather restraints had given way. He looked on numbly. No man could have possibly broken that bond. He did not think an ox could have done it. Another snap. Both arms were free. Finn's legs propelled him to his feet, knocking the chair over. Kill it, the doctor cried, hands flapping as if to shoo him forward. The president's arms were as disproportionately long as his legs. No normal man could have reached the doctor from the table. But suddenly the doctor was in the grip of those hands. He shrieked. Then the hands were around his throat. Finn had witnessed all manner of deaths. He had seen men hung. He had seen, seen men strangled, had done the strangling himself. But he had never seen a man's throat crushed before. The powerful fingers squeezed. The doctor's eyes bulged, his tongue protruded, and then the flesh of his neck burst like the shell of an overripe melon, showering the car with blood and strips of skin, and still the fingers squeezed, flesh and ichor oozing between them like moist red clay. The president's gore-splashed features were unrecognizable, contorted in an expression of primal horror, as though the hands at their grisly work belonged to someone else entirely. The stench of death filled the car, a smell Finn knew all too well of shit and blood and fear. Then came another snap, like a gunshot, and the head burst free of the body and fell to the floor with a thud. The rest of the body followed, tossed aside like an empty wineskin. Something snapped in Finn's mind at that. Help, he shouted, get in here. He drew the bowie knife, but did not advance upon the table. On the contrary, he stepped back, well out of the range of those spidery arms, which, as he did so, wasted no time in tearing off the remaining restraints as if they had been fashioned of paper. The door behind Finn burst open, and he glanced back to see two soldiers enter, rifles drawn, then halt, eyes wide as saucers and ash-pale faces. The rifles dropped, one discharged as it hit the floor, and one of the men cried out and crumpled, struck by the shot. The other bent and vomited as the movement of the train rolled the doctor's head toward him. Finn turned back, and the thing was there, inches away. Finn was a tall man, six feet, but the revenant towered above him. Instinctively, thoughtfully, thoughtlessly, he thrust with the knife, felt it slide into the guts of the thing. Before he could stab again, the knife was gone, plucked from his hand and thrown across the car and Finn felt himself grasped by the collar and lifted bodily until his eyes were on the level with the eyes of his captor. Those blue-gray orbs regarded him with something like curiosity. There was no anger in them, no malice. Finn saw suffering there, bottomless suffering, and perhaps the faintest electric flicker, tiny as the farthest star, but not the pain he had expected to see in a man he had just gutted. 
The lips moved, straining, it seemed, to speak, but nothing emerged save an airy groan that had more ghost to it than man and a swampy stench that made Finn gag. He had never been a praying man, and though now might have been a good time to start, he instead found himself giving vent to a stream of profanity such as had provided him with far more comfort and satisfaction in his life than any mealy-mouthed supplications to a divine authority whose existence he had never credited less than he did at this moment. He supposed they were as fitting a collection of last words as any other, and probably a damn sight better than most. Certainly he had improved upon the doctors. <laughs> the creature flinched as if struck, releasing Finn, who fell indecorously onto his backside. He scuttled back on his elbows, bumping into the wounded, wounded soldier, unconscious now, perhaps dead. Of his fellow, there was no sign but the vomit he had left behind, which Finn, with instinctive revulsion, suddenly realized he had crawled through. He gazed up at the monster, wishing he had a gun. The monster gazed down at him, its jaw still working to produce that ghastly moan. Finn heard commotion behind him, but did not dare turn. Stay down, Captain, for God's sake, came a voice punctuated by a gunshot. Don't shoot, you blame fool, another voice now. That's the president. <laughs> Too late. Finn had already heard the bullets smack home in the creature's torso and seen the monster stagger back a step at the force of it. But it did not fall. It did not cry out or give evidence in any way of injury or discomfort. It seemed the bullet was no more effective than his blade has been. Perhaps a man could die but once, and if resurrected from that state, could never again return to it. Now, as if the bullet, as if the impact of the bullet had jarred free a struck gear somewhere deep inside, a grating voice emerged from those blood-streaked lips. It was a voice scraped raw, a threadbare, ruined voice in which Finn nonetheless discerned, like a ghost haunting the ruins, the insistent tenor he recalled from speeches he had attended, assigned to mingle with the boisterous crowds in the days before Pinkerton had presented him with a partner and work better suited to his talents and inclinations. That voice had always struck him with its breathy power. At first blush, you expected it to waver and break like a youth's creaky tenor, but it did the opposite, picking up steam, growing stronger, firmer, the longer it went on, soaring above the noise of the crowds, a prolonged train whistle of a voice that compelled you to sit up and take notice, even before the impassioned but precise logic of the underlying argument had a chance to work its persuasion. But the words he heard now had not been composed like those speeches to melt and move a hundred hardened hearts. No, these words were for his ears, his heart, Alone. Ah, oh, Huck, what incarnation you gone and done now. The incongruity of those familiar words in that differently familiar voice stunned him. But, this, but wasn't this what he had wanted? Wasn't this what he had forced the doctor to do? Not true. The doctor had not needed to be forced, laughing outright at what, to him, must have been a sublime jest a spiteful bit of revenge for all the bitter reverses and defeats leading up to the humiliation of Appomattox Courthouse. Hell, 
Finn hadn't believed it would work. How could he? How could any sane man? But he must not have been sane any longer because he believed now. The buzz of voices behind him was growing louder. Shock and confusion had held the man, men at bay, but that would not continue much longer. They might not dare to shoot again, but that would not stop them from swarming in to subdue the president, or rather the president's body, by sheer weight of numbers, like Kerr's pulling down a stag. He was damned if he would let that happen. Finn pushed himself to his feet. Run, Jim, he said with all the urgency in him. You get the hell out of here right now. He didn't wait for a reply, but turned and threw himself, fist swinging, into the mass of blue. Thank you. So that's fantastic fiction for tonight. Um, definitely come back next month to see uh, Sarah Beth Durst and Sarah Pensker. And um, until then, have a great rest of your summer. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.